right. So aim this morning is simply to provide an introduction to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians. And um, so we're not even going to make it through those first 14 verses we read, but they kind of form the first major paragraph of what is, re- what is said. And so we will concentrate on them today. But first, a little bit of an introduction to the ministry. Um, of course, you know some of these things, but we will go through a few things. First and foremost, it is definitely we're excited to have you with us this morning. And our goal in uh, planting this church in this part of Maine is first and foremost, the glory of God. Um, and I think that is best accomplished or one way that is accomplished is through accurate teaching of the word um, and the right approach to worship. Uh, and a preaching style that I think follows that, that I'm going to do, that I'm going to follow most of the time to accomplish that is called expository. So verse by verse, line by line, that explains what's in the scriptures. And so that will most uh, frequently take the form of book studies. We will, this is a letter that Paul has written, and we're going to go through the whole letter and then move on to the next letter or to another book. Um, and that was the charge back in 2018 at my ordination um, in, at Calvary Baptist Church in Grayling was uh, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Pretty simple, preach the word. But not simple, it takes work. Um, <clears throat> and my goal mimics the Levite, that of the Levites of the Old Testament, who, where it says in Nehemiah 8.8, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So they read it, but so they could be understood. So they explained it. That method of, or this method of teaching, this expository method will keep us true to the text. It's going to prevent me from taking up hobby horse ideas and preaching only on topics I might desire from week to week. I'll hear stories of sermons that all the sermon is, is whatever the pastor got mad about last week and he went and found something to, to preach on to tell people why he's mad. Um... It also keeps us from sticking only to quote-unquote easy passages, the ones that everybody agrees with. God is love. Um, People like to hear that. Um, And while the Word of God is here to encourage us, it also will step on our toes because we are finite and sinful as we seek to learn more about our Creator. Making noise. Making all kinds of noise. You can probably just take it off. Um... Occasionally, we will do topical messages, uh, perhaps on particular issues that the Bible, uh, you know, doctrines of the Bible or issues maybe in society um, or something in our own town. But, but regardless, it's still expository preaching because you're going to bring verses to bear on the topic that you are then going to explain, with the primary resource always being the Word of God. So we will... Um, as we move forward, we will have opportunities to just have a place, maybe a box, where if you want to ask a question and you were curious about a topic where we can spend some time actually studying it, you can share that. Um, you can ask me. You can anonymously, once we actually have people, so it actually becomes anonymous. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and we can study it. Um, and we're going to use the Word of God because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is quick and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God is what does the change of the heart. Other verse, well-known verse about the Bible is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So it's good for us. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And I am a sinner just like you. Um, And while I believe God's called me to this work, I am not infallible. So I call you to do like what the Bereans did in Acts 17.11, where it says that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God, or word, with all readiness of mind. So they received it with a mind willing to learn. And they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Did he? Is that really what it says? Is that really what the Bible means? Um, so we search these things out. We study them ourselves. So expository, verse by verse, line by line, and, and to some point, eventually it gets to word by word um, because we run into words we don't understand or we don't understand how they apply. Um, and so that will be our approach. But today, our goal is to start the book of Ephesians. I wasn't really sure where to start. Um, I've had a lot of different places over the past couple months I've thought about starting. Um, and I think the Lord is directing, well, I know the Lord's directing me into the Ephesians, which I think, and I know also, will be profitable to us to begin. Um, it is a letter. We will call it the book of Ephesians, but it is a letter that Paul has written to a church. Um, he, Paul is actually going to tell us a lot about the church, um, how we came to be a part of it, um, the implications that has for our lives. What is the church? Is it this building? Is it the sign out front? And what's the church? And so let us begin in Ephesians. And so we will begin, of course, right at the beginning of chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. And we're going to be introduced to the author of the book. And I don't always plan on alliterating everything that I'm going to give you, but this worked out for some reason this time. But... Verse 1 is going to introduce us to the author of the book, the audience that he is writing to, and the architect responsible for bringing Paul and the Ephesians together. So let's first start with the author. Paul. Pretty easy, right? (laughs) Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The letter, or the author of this letter to the Ephesians is Paul. Um, I don't really have... To question that, Paul begins all of his letters in the New Testament that we know that he wrote with the word Paul. Uh, and if you um, letter writing in this time was different than it is today, uh, we typically would say like, right, good morning, good afternoon, you know, hello, to whom it may concern, we'll name the person we're writing to. But in Greek writing, you would begin with your name. Um, and so Paul does that. He does that in all of his letters that we know are from him. And so I take the word of God as truth. And I believe this is preserved. The word of God's preserved for us in our language. So Paul is introduced to us here as the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so we could spend days and days, probably weeks on studying who Paul is and everything that Paul done. But Um, And I'm not going to do an in-depth study on Paul, but I do want to give us some reminders about him, give us a little bit of the background of his story, how he came to this point. Um, And the first thing we're going to do, so 
We're going to be in Ephesians for the first two verses is where we're going to really concentrate this morning. But the other place we're going to spend some time is in the book of Acts, which will be to your left a few books uh, right after or, um, right after the Gospels and before Romans. Acts chapter 7, we get introduced to Paul, who at this time um, was... Uh, Named or came, we'll see him under the name of Saul. So Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. Um, this, be, this comes right at the time at which the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is being stoned um, at the beginning of the New Testament age. Acts chapter 7 and verse 58 says, And cast him, that is Stephen, out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And that is our character. That is the, the author of this epistle. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So that is Stephen calling upon God. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And so he, he passed away. He was killed. He was martyred for his belief. <clears throat> Saul, in this, his name at this point, is an up-and-coming Pharisee. Uh, in Romans 11, it tells us he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He knows the Jewish law as well as anyone. Uh, he called himself in Philippians 3.5 a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was the classic Hebrew. Um, however... And so he, he's, he's persecuting Jews here, or Jews. He's persecuting Christians, uh, Jews that had converted to Christianity, saying, hey, you're, you're, you're being a traitor to the original faith. You need to uh, pay for that. But we're in Acts 7 here, but two chapters later, in Acts chapter 9, um, <clears throat> he is planning to go and persecute more uh, Beginning of, verse, uh, beginning of chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, so against Christians, he went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, and that's, that's a Christian, this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus. And suddenly... There shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And so Saul's life changed that day. God intervened, and Saul was born again. He became a Christian that day. You can't fully see all of that in that. He, he does call him Lord in that, in, in that encounter, but his life changes. Um, and I'm not going to go into what happens next uh, in terms of the beginning of his ministry because we're going to kind of continue forward. But he was a persecutor. His life was changed by God. And now some, now he's going to move on. Um, now you're saying, well, when, did, when do we see him as Paul? Well, keep moving to the right there. And in Acts chapter 13, we see in verse 9, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, 
filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. So it's likely that Saul was his Jewish name and that Paul would have been the name that he would have used for the Gentile world. We'll see that. Um, You see different names. Uh, You'll see, uh, we've seen, uh, 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 it happens elsewhere in the New Testament. But but here we see Saul and Paul are likely, that's likely the the reason for the difference. Um, He is, and, and why we tend to see him more now from then on talk, are called a Paul because his mission field, his, his, uh, what God had ordained him to, what he had commissioned him for, was to be the, 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 the missionary essentially to the Gentile world. He, wouldn't, he would speak to Jews about the Lord, but his primary mission was to Gentiles. In Galatians 2.8, Paul says, For he that wrought effectually in Peter, the apostleship to the, of the circumcision, so Paul is saying that Peter was, was used, his commission was to the Jews, the circumcision. The same was mighty in me, in Paul, to the Gentiles. So, um, I would keep a finger in Acts, but I'm going to look briefly back at Ephesians um, as I... Uh, <clears throat> and we'll come back to history, because Acts is a great place, because it gives us the history of, okay, where's... Who is this person? Where is this church from? And then Ephesians, we're going to go into where he's actually writing to these people and talking to them. So back in verse 1 in Ephesians 1, Paul is called an apostle. And that comes directly, it's based on the Greek word apostolos, which means one that is sent forth or an ambassador. So Paul is literally an ambassador sent forth by Jesus Christ by the will of God. It says, right, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. God decided that Paul would be an ambassador for Jesus. He'd be sent forth for him. And that commissioning is clear by his conversion and the mission that the Lord gave him. The apostleship, now you could say that, what about us, right? We're planting a church in western Maine. Aren't we not sent forth to Tell other people about Jesus. Are we apostles? Um, <clears throat> there, are, there is a spe- special category of apostle that the Bible talks about, and that would be our 12 disciples, the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would learn about in the Gospels. Um, remember, there were 12 of them originally, one of them being a traitor, Judas Iscariot. Um, we don't need to turn there, but in, in the beginning of the book of Acts, they cast lots to pick a new one, said who's going to be his replacement, and Matthias is the one who wins, for lack of a better term. Paul calls himself as the apostle born out of due time in 1 Corinthians 15.8 because he wasn't born, his time didn't coincide with all the rest. He didn't walk with Jesus as one of his disciples when Jesus was teaching. But he did see him later. Again, we can spend time someday looking at a full study on what it means to want to be an apostle. That apostle, that's not our scope. <clears throat> but it was required that if you were to be an apostle, apostle, if you were to be an apostle, you would have to have seen the resurrected Lord. You had to see Jesus. Now, Paul saw Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. He saw it in his conversion, which we just we witnessed that back in Acts chapter 9. He saw Jesus Christ, who asked, why, did you pers- why are you persecuting me? But he also saw him later in his training. 
In the book of Galatians, we hear that Paul actually spends years in Arabia being taught by Jesus Christ himself before he comes and begins to write these letters. So, Paul is our author. What about our audience? That's also in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we're going to begin with saints. This is um, this does not mean it's not some type of special office. Um, it's not some divine human. Um, a saint, the word simply means to be set apart. One who is set apart. It is one set apart for God, by God, for his use. Um, all believers are referred to as saints. Somebody who is sanctified. They're made a saint. They're set apart for God's use. But you may ask here, it says, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So are there two groups that Paul is writing to? Now, there is a group of commentators that do believe that this was a circular letter, a letter that would have been written to, yes, the Ephesians, but just to be go from church to church, to just be kind of handed out, here's yours, here's yours, here's yours. So that here's, it's Ephesus, but yeah, but it's also to the faithful brethren. Um, but I think it would be kind of odd if we considered this to be two separate groups, because that would tend to imply that the saints that are at Ephesus, are they not faithful in Christ Jesus? Um, but there's other, another group that he's writing to that is. Um, I think it's more likely that the faithful in Christ Jesus here is just simply another description for the saints that are at Ephesus. To the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. They are, they are saints. They are saints of, of Christ Jesus. They are faithful. They are believers. The bottom line is Paul's audience are believers. They are believers. And we'll see that for almost all of his letters. That will be the case. Well, what do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus was a prosperous port city in the Roman Empire, located on the coast of the Aegean Sea, and it's on the west coast of what is currently today Turkey. Um, it's in western Turkey. It was the fourth or fifth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, with about 200 to, 200 to 250,000 people. In terms of its religious aspects, so it's, it's not in the Jewish world, right? So this is in the Gentile world. <clears throat> in terms of its religious aspects, it was known for its worship of Artemis. Um, and, it, and in our King James Bible, you will see that called Diana, Princess Diana. Um, but it, but um, if you were to look, do a bit much of a search, Artemis is, is frequently the name used for the goddess that was worshipped. This Greek goddess was associated with animals and hunting and was associated with fertility. There was a great temple to Artemis in in Ephesus at the time of Paul, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was actually a destination place. People would go, it was like a tourist spot to go see one of the seven wonders of the world. They would go to see this great temple to Artemis. In fact, it's, it's a very big part of the city's life. In, we'll, we'll get back to Acts in a little bit, but in Acts chapter 19, Paul will encounter a silversmiths there who are building little statues of Diana or Artemis um, and making money off of it. That was their trade. They, they made little figurines of the, of the goddess. So it's a pagan city. It's given wholly to idolatry. And 
somehow there's a Christian church here. So we know that we know about Paul, we know about the location of Ephesus. How does Paul know that there's a church there? How does he know who he's writing to? Um, who is he sending this to? Just like, well, there's got to be a Christian church in Ephesus. Let's send one there. No, he knows these people. And um, in fact, uh, Paul was a, largely a missionary. His, most of his, much of his time spent is a, in his ministry was to be a missionary. He's a missionary to the Gentiles. He had three major missionary journeys in his life. They're all cataloged in the book of Acts. And in the second missionary journey of these three, he founds the church at Ephesus. So he is the founding, just like we're doing today. He founds the church at Ephesus. God founds it, but through Paul. So let's turn back to Acts, Acts chapter 18. And we can see that. Acts chapter 18, and we will be at verse 18. So Paul is um, in his second missionary journey. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while. And then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So these are two other Christians having shorn his head in Centria for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will turn again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So it's a very short visit in Ephesus around the year AD 52. Now he went to the synagogue first, and this is Paul's manner. He goes to the synagogue, and you're going to find not Gentiles in the synagogue. You're going to find Jews there. Um, and he disputes or he, he, he talks to them. He tries to convince them of what he's teaching because the Old Testament scriptures are not inconsistent with what, we're, what he's going to show us here in the New Testament. And it is likely during that time that beginning of the church happens. So he talks to them. There's a few that believe. He begins that work. They want to talk to him more, but he has to move on. He's trying to return to Jerusalem. And so he leaves them, but he promises to come back if the Lord wills. So he, he returns back to what is likely his home church in Antioch. He begins a third missionary journey um, in verse 23. It says, and after he had spent some time there, this is in Antioch, he departed. So off he goes again and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. So during this journey, if we kind of just follow, slowly go forward, um, we find Apollos teaching in Ephesus in verse 24. Um, and Paul arrives shortly thereafter, and he finds, and so we'll, um, um, we'll, we'll move into chapter 19. It says, and it came to pass, verse 1, that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, and he found disciples there. So he found believers there. He spends roughly three months in the synagogue, and he actually then spends two more years disputing in the school of Tyrannus. So let's look at that down in verses 8 through 10. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and pers- persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. So there he is in the synagogue, three months, trying to, to convert, see people converted to Christ. 
But when divers were hardened, so when a lot of people weren't so excited about what he had to say, they believed not, but spake evil of the way of that way before the multitude. He departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So he goes, he's disputing, he gets known, he's known by Jews, he's now known by Gentiles, and there's a church that has begun there. And he's been there now for two years and three months. Um, Verse 21 of chapter 19, Paul makes a plan to leave. He purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. But he does spend a little bit more time. He says he ends up waiting for a season, the end of verse 22, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Um, So he goes, he's in Ephesus for three months, two years, and a season, which probably comes out to what? Something a little less than three years, probably. But finally, and we're not going to go through the details of it here, but an uproar occurs in Ephesus. They start to get tired of this guy. They're like, we're done with Paul. Why? It's uh, Demetrius um, is upset because people are stopped. They're, they're starting to not buy his statues of Diana anymore. It's like, you know, I'm, you're cutting in on my business. Like, I, this is all great. People want to come in and talk about Jesus, who the, this Jesus is. But now it's starting to cost me money. And so an uproar begins of people upset about this, this uh, uh, their business being cut in on, and Paul is forced to depart. And he never, he never goes to Ephesus again. Um, in fact, um, there's one more meeting where, where he, he interacts with the Ephesian church, but he doesn't actually go there. And that is over in Acts chapter 20. And I know I'm skipping kind of through this. We need to do a study through Acts someday so we can get all the history. It's kind of interesting as we go through the history. Uh, but this is giving us a context for our book. So Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. It says, and now brethren. So I'm going to actually let me back up as to why is this uh, speech happening. Paul is on a trip to Jerusalem. He gets close to Ephesus, but does not want to stay there because he had, again, he's trying to make it to Jerusalem. It will delay him. So he is going to pass by Ephesus this time. He's not going to stop there. But he calls the elders or the pastors or the leaders of the church to come to him in Miletus, where he's going to say some things to them before he departs to Jerusalem. And he knows going into this, this is the last time he's going to see anybody from the Ephesian church. So Acts chapter 20, verse 32, it says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them which were with me. So Paul is essentially saying, I didn't cost you. I worked with my own hands to, to provide for my own means. I have showed you all things how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And as they and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship.
So, Paul spends between two and three years in Ephesus. And scholars believe that it is, in fact, here where he writes a number of his other letters. First and Second Corinthians and Philippians, Galatians. Now, before we move on to the back to, to our, our study in Ephesians, there's two other interesting features of note about Ephesus and Paul's time there and just the Ephesian church. I'll just read it here, but in 1 Corinthians 15.32 we hear, this is Paul writing again, If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it, it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul had to fight beasts there, which means he prob- might have been in, in, for a time imprisoned and put in a place where he had to, you know, one of those cage, you know, out in the, the Colosseum type thing where you've got to deal with it, uh, uh, an animal. He fought a beast but was protected by the Lord because we know he lived beyond that. Also of note about the church at Ephesus is when, when we'll, we'll, we'll go there at the end of the study today. Um, it is one of the churches, it is actually the first church mentioned at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2 in the list of the seven churches that have letters written to them. Essentially, they're the words of the Lord Jesus to these churches um, where it says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So there's a message to Ephesus at the very end of the Bible from the Lord himself. Now in terms of the writing of the letter, this all comes later, right? So here's we've looked at this interaction, this the founding of the church, Paul's missionary journeys, Paul's final visit to the Ephesian elders, it is after that where he writes to them. Sometime likely when Paul was a prisoner in Rome, in, uh, towards the end of his life, around AD 63 or 64, and we know he, he, multiple times in the book of Ephesians, he does refer to himself as one who was in prison. So, he knows his audience. He knows these people. They were in hostile territory. They faced false teaching. They faced idolatry. But there were believers that remained faithful to the teaching that Paul had first brought them more than a decade earlier. So we have the, we have the, audience, or the author and the audience. Now let's move to the architect, back in Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> so there's two characters that are described multiple times in the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ and God the Father are, like, big deal, right? They're, they're important, right, Alan? Big deal. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the architect, though, is identified with the words, by the will of God. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. Paul's an apostle. Paul founded the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote inscribed, inspired scripture. Paul is writing this letter that we're seeing right here, all by the will of God. What is the will? Well, dictionary definition of the will would be the faculty of the mind by which we determine either to do or to forbear an action. The understanding or reason compares the different objects which operate as motives, the judgment determines which one's preferable, and the will decides which to pursue. But who did it? God. 
God, by the will of God. God put the plan into action. And that's going to be a theme for the book. A big theme for the book is that God is the architect. God is the orchestrator. In fact, the will of God is mentioned three more times in this chapter. Verse 5, we see the will of God. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. And verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God is the architect of what we are seeing here. It was, not, it was not Saul's choice to get knocked off his horse and converted. God intervened. Notice that the will of God is for the object of this writing to center around Jesus Christ, which we saw repeated three times in these first two verses in Ephesians. Paul is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. When he came to Ephesus, that's what he was proclaiming, Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to, the faithful in Jesus Christ. That's who they believe in. Now in verse 2, we see a greeting. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This exact or nearly exact greeting is found in Romans. It's found in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. All books, letters that Paul wrote. So what about, what what do we, we we, we introduce God and Lord Jesus Christ, but what is grace and peace? Grace, one commentator said, is the gospel in one word. It describes unmerited favor or undeserved favor which is necessary for our salvation. And it also describes divine enablement, necessary for our Christian walk. So the favor of God and his enablement. And so do, do we see that? I mean, is that consistent with what's in the Bible? Well, where we are here in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, so through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. How do we get that? According to the riches of his grace. That's unmerited favor. We have a merited favor because of the grace, or that is the grace of God, and it's manifested in the forgiveness of sins. What about our walk as Christians? Divine enablement. Well, we'll stay in Ephesians, but in Ephesians 4, 7, where it's talking about gifts, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we are given enablement by God through Christ for our Christian walk. And later in the chapter, it talks about there's some that are apostles, there's some that are prophets, some are evangelists. There's different gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. But those are given, those are by grace. But what, so that's grace. Grace be to you and peace. Well, what's peace? Well, peace, that's simple, right? A lack of conflict, a lack of warfare. The peace that Paul calls us to here is that between the believer and God. Paul is not saying grace to you and peace. Uh, Ephesians, I hope that you know never have to deal with war in your lives between Ephesus and the next city to the next to you or, or between Christians and or non-Christians. 
In Colossians 1.20, Paul describes this peace where he says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, that's Jesus and his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So it's a peace between us and God. One commentator said that grace describes the cause of God's work, while peace is the effect of God's work, cause and effect. If you have not repented of sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation today, you are at war with God. That's what the Bible says. It, call, it says you're not neutral. It says the Bible calls, us a, it, calls it a, you're at enmity with him. That's the kind of King James word. <laughs> but it's war. However, by Christ's shed blood on the cross of Calvary, peace with God is possible. And that's more than just you laying down your arms type peace. It's by you submitting to Jesus Christ and claiming him as your Savior and Lord. So, it's clear that grace and peace are not something we can conjure up ourselves. And therefore, it's not surprising that this greeting identifies God as the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as the source, the architect. They are the both responsible and being as they are both co-equal members of the Godhead. So, now to In our final minutes this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the book as a whole. So we've introduced it. We know who's writing it, who he's writing to, who's the architect. But a survey of the book, um, I think uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a sense for the whole letter as we approach it. We're going to be able to break the book down into two large sections, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. They're two units. And I like the basic naming of these divisions that was given by uh, commentator uh, Harold Honer, which calls the first three chapters the calling of the church and the second three chapters the conduct of the church. Calling and conduct. How do we get here? Where are we going? Um, That kind of thing. The first three chapters comprise doctrine, and they have fewer commands. In fact, the only command given in this first three chapters of Ephesians is in Ephesians 2.11, where it tells us that, let's see, wherefore, remember. Remember. Remember what? Being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And it goes on that you were aliens from Christ. You were, you, were, you were unbelievers. But that's its only command. So largely it's you listening in the first three chapters of, to, to doctrine. But there's a change that happens at the beginning of chapter 4. Verse chapter 1, 2, 3, doctrine. Chapter 4, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And we talked about this this morning or yesterday, right? When you see a therefore, you have to look before the therefore to figure out what the therefore is there for. <clears throat> Kids like that. Um, so you look backwards to the doctrine and then therefore do what? Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And this brings up an important aspect of this book that I want us to remember going forward. In Paul's letters, this idea of doctrine appearing first, then an application or an exhortation to duty following is repeated. For example, there's a companion letter to Ephesians, Colossians, 
where we have two chapters that focus on doctrine before we reach the following words. If, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. So there is, if you're this, then do this. In the book of Romans, there are 11 chapters with the most complete training in New Testament doctrine to be found in the scriptures. Then, Paul turns to his exhortation for the, fall, for the remainder of the book in chapters 12 through 16 with the following. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And finally, another letter by Paul, Galatians, he defends his apostleship. He points out the doctrinal errors of something called elite legalism in Galatia. He then transitions um, at the beginning of chapter 5 in that book to the practical duties of the believers. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So they're all... So but why? So why is this structure important? And I've heard some helpful preaching on this, and, and so this isn't all original with me, but there's, it's, a, it's a valuable concept that I think will be helpful. As people... We frequently want to know the what and not always the why. Just show me how to do it. Um, Using the tool before reading the instructions. Clicking accept before you actually read the terms of service. This also makes its way into the life of the Christian. Just show me how I ought to live. Wouldn't it be easier if I just gave you a list, right? We had the Christian to-do list, and if we finished our to-do list each day, we'd be a good Christian. But that's not how it works. Much of the Old Testament, in fact, is written to show us that this method doesn't work. Uh, The children of Israel told God, we will obey all that you have told us. And then they did over and over and over and over again. He gave them the law and they failed miserably. In fact, Galatians, the book of Galatians, Paul tells us the law is our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ. Because it says, hey, what? You're unable to actually carry out what the law demands. So you need Jesus. So in the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us the why in chapters 1 through 3, followed by the what. In chapter 1, Paul's going to describe the tremendous blessing of knowing the eternal God. In chapter 2, we're going to see our original condition as dead in trespasses and sins and how we were then gloriously resurrected if we were born again, raised to spiritual life by our faith in Christ given to us by the grace of God. And then in chapter 3, Paul is going to spend time elaborating on what he calls the mystery. Um, He he actually refers to the mystery in verse 9 of chapter 1. But in verse 6 of chapter 3, he says that the Gentiles, this is the mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So the mystery we're going to get into it later, is that we get to be part of this. This is, as Gentiles, this isn't just a thing for the Jews. So these are amazing and astonishing truths. And it's with those truths in mind that Paul turns to calling us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. The progression is key. If you don't have a solid understanding of why you are here, the glory of God in bringing you here, And the purpose of God in having you here, your Christian walk is not going to be one that glorifies him. 
You know, we don't store up Christian doctrine so that we can just know more about our Bibles this, this year than last year. Or that we can look good when we compare ourselves to other Christian friends. We learn Christian doctrine because its astonishing truths will push us towards a desire to serve the Lord at all times and at all costs. These doctrines build our love for Christ and his word. And what will this building of love for Christ produce? Obedience. John 14, 15 tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's Jesus Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. So my exhortation today or encouragement for you is to pay close attention to the first three chapters as they give you the right frame of mind to approach the what to do in chapters four through six. And since you and I are the church, it's not the building, it's us. Having each one of us take this approach will then position this church to be able to fulfill its calling in the world. So our study today was a bit unique. Um, it's necessary, so it wasn't like I t- tell you, oh, I'm going to do all this verse-by-verse teaching, and then I don't. Um, uh, I do two verses. Um, but that's because we need some, some background before we get into it. Um, and I hope that this will give us good context for as we dig deeper into the letter. Paul knows the Ephesians well, having helped found their church. It's clear that the interaction with the elders that he has in Acts chapter 20, that he, it's not just that he built the church, started it. He loves those people. He has a close bond with them. Ephesus was, the, was a hostile territory to the Christian, and it's not surprising that Paul will once again point uh, the Ephesian saints to their glorious position as saved individuals to move them away from the temptation to turn back to the idolatry that surrounds them. But what about, what can we gain for, for our lives from this today? And I want to, to, to two, two things. First, remember the architect. God willed Paul to be an apostle. And his will is involved in why we're here today and why we're studying. So let us not forget that there's an all-powerful and sovereign ruler of the universe who is orchestrating things according to the good pleasure of his will. That should really be the ultimate pride defeater. To see God high is necessarily to see us low. John the Baptist said, He must increase but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. In fact, looking ahead in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we see, that the, we see the ultimate design of God's divine plan. Looking in verses 5 and 6, It says, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he do that? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Down in verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Verse 14. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. The consistent theme is God's glory and the praise of it. God's glory is our burden for Northern Light Baptist Church. Will seeking God's glory be a benefit to God's people? Yes, absolutely. But that benefit is not the end. It's a wonderful result of pursuing the right end, which is the glory of God. So that's first. Secondly... Given this sovereign plan of God that is being carried, out, I want I, being carried out. I want to call our hearts to a deeper love for Christ. 
So only 30 years after Paul writes Ephesians, we see the following written by John in the final book, Revelation. So I'm going to turn there to end Revelation chapter 2. We'll go there if you'd like. There's a series of letters to seven churches that is in Revelation chapter 2. And so, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus. And it likely means the pastor of that church, but not for, not a, don't need to discuss that much today, but just to move on. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he which holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, so I know your works, and, the, and your labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst bear them which are evil. That's good. And thou hast tried them which, have said they, which say they are apostles and are not, and found them to be liars. Okay, so they, they like to try, make sure the people who are genuine. And has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. We have a lot that can distract us today, particularly in an affluent country where most conveniences are available at the flip of a switch. So many things are vying for our attention. What is our first love? That was on Paul's mind as he closed his letter to the Ephesians, in fact. The final letter, the final verse of that book says, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So he, 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 he ends by saying, you, you know, Grace to you if you love Jesus Christ in sincerity. And here Jesus is rebuking them for having lost their first love only 30 years later. Is our love fully directed towards Jesus? Is love of him preeminent? This book will ultimately show us that our walking consistent with our Christian calling is born out of recognizing God for who he is and loving his son for who he is and what he has done for us. And let that be our heart's desire. And may our actions flow out of this. Let's close in a word of prayer before we uh, sing our final song and have a couple of announcements. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord.